John 20, uh, starting in verse 11. It should be on the screen if you don't have a Bible there in front of you. John 20, starting in verse 11. This is God's Word. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can come and we can sit and hear what you have said. That we can experience what Mary has experienced through your word of seeing and beholding you. So pr- we pray now by your spirit that you would, you would help us to see with the eyes of faith. And that we would cling to you here this morning in a deeper way than we did when we came in, before when we came in. Do that in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. It's the Sunday that we celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And I'm calling today, if you have your notes there in front of you, and kids, too, just want, I, know, I know you're in service with us today, too. And by the way, welcome, children. I know you're usually downstairs, but welcome upstairs. Um, this is what we do every week. <laughs> I'd like to tell you we do something different, but we don't. This is what we do every week. We, hear, we open up God's Word, and we hear from what, what God has said. But there, there should be some notes there in front of you. If you don't have them, make sure you get them. And kids, there's, there's some uh, kid sheets in the back. You can grab one of those if you need one. But I, I entitled today, The Greatest Answer Ever and it's accepted into God's family. And last week, if you remember, I said that last week was entitled The Greatest Prayer Ever. And it was simply this. I wanted you to hear again what Jesus prayed in John 17. He prayed this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. And now we see today the greatest answer ever. We see the greatest answer ever, and this is what it is. If you're taking notes, it's right there in front of you. It's this, is that resurrection reveals the greatest answered prayer, and it's this, relational reconciliation that receives you as a relative. You like all those R's? 
I like them. I'm able to remember those, those kind of things. Relational reconciliation that receives you as a relative. And I'm going to unpack that statement. And I want us to consider a passage, but to do so, I want us to actually go on a journey. And it's a journey of a story. And it starts, I would argue, it's, it, 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 we, could, we could break it up into more gardens than this, but I would argue it's a story of four gardens. And the first garden I want us to enter into together, it's the garden of creation. So if you're taking notes there, it's the garden of creation. And it's God planted a garden. And in the beginning, God created and formed all the world. He created man and placed him in the garden. And he said this, Genesis 2, 7 through 8 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of walking through a garden, but gardens are beautiful, vastly beautiful. No one has to tell you, hey, hey, look, this garden's really beautiful. You just walk through it and you know this garden is beautiful. And you know, if you've ever walked in the cool of the day through a beautiful flowers or elegant trees, the soft soil beneath your feet, the gardens are radiant. And I want you to see created for life. The reason why gardens do that to us when we walk through them is that we were ones who were created for life. And it's everything pleasant. I want you to listen again to what Genesis says. And over and over again in Genesis, we hear this phrase used, and God said it was good. It was good. It was good. But this is what he says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Now you know how the story goes. The next words out of the Lord's mouth are, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you know how the story goes. Adam and Eve, they eat of the fruit of the tree, the one particular tree God told them not to eat from, and instantaneously in that act of rebellion, they were separated from God relationally. Not just separated from him relationally, though. God did something greater. He said, not only will you not be here in this garden with me anymore, relationally, I'm going to separate you. And he kept them out. Kept out is that next piece. It's removed as death. So not only were they separated spiritually, but they were separated physically. God told them, get out. What was created, what man was created to do was to be in fellowship with God, and that is now ripped away. Genesis 3, 22 through 24, listen to what he says. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And now least he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is a very bleak picture. The home we were created for, God says, get out. You, you broken relationship, you've broken fellowship with me, now get out as a sign of it. And not only get out, he's saying, I'm going to put an angel at the door that does not allow you back in. Don Carson, I love what he said in this. He said, that in the first garden, he says, not your will, but mine changed paradise to desert 
and brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Or I'd put it another way. He not only brought, changed paradise to a desert and brought man from Eden, I would, rather than Gethsemane, I would put it to exile. He, he, not your will but mine, took him from the garden paradise to a garden of exile. That's their second garden. So it's the garden of exile, and I'm calling this Death Valley. And the great question of Scripture is how will this relationship be mended? How will God dwell again with man? And if you look at your Old Testament, there is so much of your Old Testament that is is simply just showing how we're supposed to relate to God relationally now. And the natural disposition of all humanity finds itself in this second garden. Every baby born into this world is born into the garden of exile. Brothers and sisters, all we have ever known is the garden of exile. All we've ever known in this life. It's where blood, the blood of man spilt. It's where sin and rebellion runs rampant. It's where every injustice, calamity, and evil has ever taken place. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see God saying, I'm coming, though. I'm going to come and I'm going to make it right. But in the meantime, in this garden of exile, we see a means, God uses a means to relate to people, and it's called the temple. Now, in the temple, if you've ever read your Old Testament, you always see this language of a very like, garden-like imagery in the temple. You go in the temple, and there would be pomegranates, and there would be trees, and the temple was meant to represent what God was going to do again. It's the place where God met with people. But you didn't just walk in all willy-nilly into the temple. You couldn't just walk into the presence of God. Listen to Exodus 40, 34-35. This is Moses at the end of Exodus, when, when God's glory began to dwell there in the temple. It says this, Then the glory covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because of the cloud that settled on it. It's a very bleak picture. We're not only out of the garden, but now here's this temple that we're meant to relate to God, and God's saying, you can't even, don't even come near me. But in the temple, there was a particular piece that God told them to make. And he says this, Exodus 25. It's actually what's called the mercy seat. And in the mercy seat, it was, would be where God's presence would dwell with his people. Now listen to what he says. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, that is. And in the Ark you shall put the testimony, the the Ten Commandments, that I shall give you. I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on on the Ark of the Testimony. So there we see it again. These angels guarding the presence of God. Don't come near. And we can look at Isaiah 6. We can look at other places to show. The angels are guarding us from coming near. Verse 22, he says, I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. And we see this picture. I want to introduce to you, though, the third garden. So that's the garden of exile, and that's where all humanity finds itself. But I want you to see this third garden, which is the garden of life. It's the garden of life. And this is where we're going to spend our time today in John 20. And it's the God restores life. Now, the way that God restored life in this third garden is, is paradoxical. 
or it's a, it's, a, it's a contradiction, it seems, of sorts. The way that God will restore life in the third garden is through death. I want you to think about that for a second. The divine paradox of the Christian life is that death is put to death in the death of Christ. Let me say that one more time. The death, that death is put to death in the death of Christ. And our enemy, Satan, death, hell, were defeated in the death of Christ. In the death of Christ, we hear Christ utter, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And the place that we call Golgotha, the place that we call Christ dying, listen to what it says in John 19, just a few verses later. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever laid. And in this third garden, for a moment, we think that death, it it seems as though death has won the day. It seems as though all is lost. Now, I want you to notice John 20, verse 1. This is what we see. So Jesus is buried, he's laid in the tomb, but then all of a sudden, Mary goes. In verse 1 of chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now we know how the story goes. We heard it read this morning. She goes and she tells Peter and John, and they come running, and they look in the tomb, and they, they see, oh my goodness, he's gone. They're reeling, what's going on? So they run away. They go home. They go probably to tell the others. But Mary, she comes back with them. And we're told of this story that happens, this exchange between the Lord Jesus and Mary. Mary comes back and she, she tries to figure out what happened. And you can imagine, I don't know, if, I'm not sure if you've ever experienced this, I hope you haven't experienced this, that, that if you laid a loved one to rest, this idea that someone would come and dig them up or come and take them away would be very disturbing. And so she comes back, she's trying to figure out what happened. In verse 10, look down in verse 10, this is where we'll look in our passage for the exposition today. And and then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Now, I want you to remember something about Mary. Mary is a very important character. Mary is one who we see later in Luke chapter 8. She was one who, who had seven demons cast out of her. And if you remember even what demons do, they're, they're not just, it's not just that she had demons cast out of her. She would have been a very promiscuous woman. She would have been a woman who was probably like the, the Gadarean demoniac, dwelling naked, being, being just the worst of the worst of society. And we see all throughout the Gospels, the Lord Jesus drives out these demons. And then we see Mary, her, her reaction to the Lord is one of always dwelling with him, wanting to hear from him. And now her master and Lord is gone. I want you to feel the weight of that. The person who literally has changed your life in a 180 degree turn is gone. And you can imagine she's just feeling the weight of this. So she lingers, likely befuddled at her situation. She lingers to weep and mourn the fact that her Lord is now gone. Not only was he crucified, but now someone has taken him. She lingers, not because she believes yet, but because she thinks that Jesus had been taken. And in her grief that the Lord has not been found, she finds answers. 
Her desire is to figure out what happened to Jesus, and she peers into the tomb, and this is what she sees. Look at verse 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. I'm calling this encountering angels, also known as welcomed in. And without even knowing it, Mary unwittingly experiences something radical. I want you to pay attention to the way that John describes the situation of her, her in her tears, looking in and seeing what she sees. Now notice what she sees. And it says in verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, if you're an insightful Bible reader, you've already noticed what our scripture was this morning, which was about the mercy seat. Why these specific details? Why tell us? Why tell us there's one sitting where his head was and there's one sitting where his feet were? Remember the Garden of Eden. When our parents were removed, angels stood at the entrance, keeping them from returning. And all throughout the Old Testament, every time we see angels, they're saying, stay back. Stay back. You don't want to come near. If you come near, you'll be destroyed. Not because God does not want to be near them, but because we would come near and we would be destroyed in ourselves. And we're kicked out of the garden. The angels guarded the way. The mercy seat in the tabernacle, the angels guarded the tabernacle. But here, Mary's not told to leave. Notice what it says again in verse 12. And she saw two angels sitting in white, or in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And what do they do? Come on in. Come on in. Unprecedentedly, they don't say, get out, get out, you need to get away. They say, come on in. Come on in. The angels welcome her in. These angels stand as a fulfillment of the mercy seat we see in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the mercy seat was where atonement would take place. Atonement was offered. The covering of sin was done. It was the place where the presence of God himself would dwell. And now we see two angels sitting at the mercy seat. It's just this mercy seat doesn't have the sacrifice any longer. This mercy seat has one who sits and there's no, there's no one sitting there. You know why? Because he's risen. Because the presence of God now dwells with man. Notice what they say then. Verse 12 and 13. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, you know what they don't say to her? What are you doing here? Get out. God's holy, holy, holy. Go away. That's not what they say. What do they say to her? Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, you can imagine through, through tears and just grief, they have taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. And the angel's question is it acts as an invitation an invitation to a deeply flawed, deeply sinful, deeply unworthy person like Mary. And brothers and sisters, we need to hear the same question to us here this morning. To all who are weak and needy, why are you weeping? To all who are hurting and helpless, why are you weeping? 
Mary stands as a kind of picture of all humanity that we even see imaged in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, we see a picture of the same thing, of, of weeping taking place as humanity. This is what it says, Revelation 5, 1 through 2. Then I saw in the right hand of him who seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back seals with seven seals. And I saw a mighty, mighty angel proclaiming with a loud wor- voice, who is worthy to open the scrolls and break its seal? Who is worthy? And John's only response, you know what he responds with? Just weeping. You know why he weeps? Because no one was worthy. Because there was nobody that could come and break the seals. Verse 3 and 4, he says, And no one in heaven and on earth and under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll to look into it. These angels, though Mary encounter, don't say to her, Woman, get out. They say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? You know why they say, Why are you weeping? In the same way that Revelation 5, 5 says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And they sang, verse 9 and 10, down to verse 9 and 10, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on all the earth. When we see Mary walk in that tomb, When we see her look in, we need to see, we need to hear all of this language. You know why Mary wasn't welcomed? She wasn't welcomed because they looked at her and said, wow, Mary, you're really a great person. You've cleaned your life up really well. I'm really proud of you, Mary. They didn't say, look, Mary, come on in. You know why you should come in? Because you're great. They didn't say, "You're you're not welcome because you're worthy, Mary. We are welcomed because Christ is worthy. Because Christ has picked up the scroll. Because Christ is worthy. The worthiness of Christ is the grounds about what he tells Mary that we're adopted into the family. Which is why resurrection reveals the greatest answered prayer. It's relational reconciliation, that first piece. Relational reconciliation that receives you as a relative. And what she experienced in that moment of stooping her head in was she's been reconciled. She's been relationally reconciled to God. And the question you should ask as you're sitting here listening and looking at Mary is, have I been relationally reconciled? Can it be said, now, now hear me right, this isn't for just all humanity, okay? This is for those whom Jesus has purchased with his own blood. For those who've received the Lord Jesus in that way. So you should ask yourself the question, have I been relationally reconciled? But this doesn't fix Mary's situation. She's still weeping. She still doesn't quite get it. The grief of her loss is just still too much. Notice down in verses 13 and 14. And 15, I guess. They said to her, this is the angels, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, 
She turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Now, many sit and wonder, like, well, why didn't she know it was Jesus? I would argue, I think she, she probably just was so, had been crying for so long. I don't know if you've ever cried to the point where you're blubbering. It's really hard to see people in that way, but she's, she's not even thinking, this is Jesus. Why would she think that? She watched Jesus die. Why would this be Jesus she's talking to? So having said this, verse 14 and 15, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And I want you to see the encountering of the risen Lord. And in this moment, Mary stands as a kind of example of all humanity. Eve, in the garden, if you remember, when she walked in rebellion, she went and hid herself. That Her and Adam both did. And here, Mary is, is wandering around, confused, grief-stricken, overwhelmed. And I want you to hear the words of our Lord again. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Since his resurrection, Jesus has showed himself to one human being on the earth, and it's Mary. Likely one of the most, most depraved people he met on this earth. She was following him, and there's one person who knows he's been raised and has seen him face to face, and it's a woman. Now, in the second century, and I wasn't going to mention this, but I think it's helpful, one of, the, one of the biggest arguments against Christianity, you know what it was? It was actually this. It was basically that why should we believe Christians because God revealed himself to a woman? We, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't count, we shouldn't, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't believe Christianity because look, they're saying Jesus revealed himself to a woman. And there's a, there's a Greek philosopher who said something to the effect of like, we don't believe women in that way. Like, we don't believe their testimony. And I would argue, even from this verse, that this is the reason why we should believe it. They're not making this up. You know why they're not making this up? Because if they're making this up, they'd want to say, well, yeah, there was a guy who came and saw it. No, no, no. Not Jesus. Not our Lord. This is what he does. He goes to, he goes to those who are weak and meek and mild, to those who are unassuming. And he says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, verse 15, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Which is ironic, because she's literally sitting there talking to him. She's like, Sir, where have you taken him? He's like, I'm right here. I'm right here. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And I want you to see the familiar voice. And it's the voice of the shepherd. And in a moment, Mary went from confusion to clarity. She went from grief to joy, from sorrow to celebration. The reason why she knew in that moment when he said, Mary, is the same reason we see Jesus say in another place, that his sheep hear his voice. Listen to what Jesus says in another place. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. 
In this moment, we realize that the Lord Jesus is the one who's come to shepherd his people. The familiar voice reveals, he shows himself to be, I am the great shepherd of the sheep, and he's here. Resurrection reveals the greatest answered prayer, that relational reconciliation receives you as a relative. Now, notice what he says to her, though. This is surprising. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Now, this is very interesting, because we'll see just later, if you remember, he tells Thomas and he tells others to feel his scars. Feel it. See that I'm not a ghost in this way. Feel my, feel my hands. Feel my, feel my side. But Jesus, he said, but, but to Mary, he says, don't, don't cling to me. Or essentially, like, don't touch me. And here's the reason why. Jesus exhorts Mary not to cling to him, not because he didn't want to be touched, but because her grasping at him was in such a way that basically showed she really didn't believe he was even here. It's the the grabbing after someone that is so astonished, so overjoyed, so, so overwhelmed that Jesus' exhortation is, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here. Don't, Don't cling to me like that. Don't cling to me like that, he says in verse 17. Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But the great promise is what he's going to fulfill here. It's it's not only don't cling to me here in this moment, but don't cling to me so that he tells them in John 16, nevertheless, as I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. For Jesus to tell Mary not to cling to him, he is saying, it's to your advantage that I'm going away. You have me here in, in physical form now, but he's saying there's something greater coming. And the greatness of it is now the Lord Jesus dwells with Mary by his spirit. And he's not just dwelling with Mary, but he's dwelling with all. For all who receive him, for all who've had their hearts changed in that way, he dwells with all. And that's not all that he tells her though. So he says, don't cling to me, but he also says, invited in, adopted into the family. Now, this is profound, what I'm about to say. Look at verse 17, what he says. He says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father. Okay, so that first piece shouldn't be a surprise to us. We've heard Jesus call God his father over and over again. But what's striking is that little and. It's not, he doesn't say, I'm ascending to my father. Oh yeah, and and you all, yeah, you can come if you want, I guess. He says, I'm ascending to my father and your father. I'm ascending to my God and your God. The offer that Jesus gives to his followers is this, that by repenting of their sins and trusting Christ, they may actually be received as adopted children into the family of God. And Jesus is saying, I'm ascending to my father, but now we call him your father. Now we call him your father. Derek Prime, he says it like this. He says, adoption is even more wonderful than justification. In justification, we are pronounced right with God the judge. In adoption, we are declared to be loved and cared for by God the Father as his children. Through trusting Christ alone, Jesus is inviting us to call God our very Father. 
And because of the resurrection, all who have trusted in Christ come to share in the sonship of Christ. Now, we are not the same kind of sons that Jesus is. Jesus is the eternal Son that has always been in relationship with the Father. But me and you and all who've trusted in Christ are now called adopted children into the family of God. I've told this story before, and I'll probably tell it again because it's just so compelling. But uh, there's, a, there's a little boy in our family who was adopted. Um, and there was, a, there was a period of time where before he was adopted... He was legally my, my brother-in-law's. But in this moment, when, when they first picked up and embraced their new son, he, he was in, from Ethiopia, they picked him up and they held him in their arms. Before doing that, he was their child. But when he did that, when they picked up their son and they adopted him, the love and affection of hugging him and holding him is that feeling of adoption we're talking about here. Galatians 4, 4 through 7, it says it like this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I love what, again, to finish that quote from D.A. Carson, he says this, he says, in the first garden, not your will but mine changed paradise to desert and brought men from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, not not my will but yours brings anguish to the man who prays it, but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings men from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. And we are witnessing the gates of glory swinging wide. I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. I don't want you to miss that. He's ascending to his Father, and now he can say he's ascending to our Father. Resurrection reveals the greatest answer to prayer, and it's relational reconciliation that receives you as a relative. So the only real question you have to ask then is, have I trusted the Son of God? Can you honestly say that the Holy Spirit does this work in you that says, makes your heart cry out, Abba, Father? Now notice what he tells her to do. Going on, he says, it's this last section of sent to proclaim. And he says in verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord that he had said these things to her. Now, what's ironic is that they didn't believe her. Just like we see in the first, second century. They didn't believe her. They, 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 the Lord revealed himself to a woman. Why would we believe that? We can't believe that. Now, the one, the one that we always call poor guy, we call him Doubting Thomas, right? How, how, the guy doubts one time in his life, and we're literally, he's gotten the name Doubting Thomas ever since then. Just like we see that, that John was apparently faster than Peter, that which is recorded. But this is, what, this is what we see later. The ones who come to, to that at one point don't believe Mary, this is what they say in verse, uh, jump down to verse 26 through uh, 29. And eight days later, the disciples were inside again and Thomas with them. Now this is after Mary went and told them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, 
Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, the one who doubted, Put your fingers here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And brothers and sisters, that is us today. If you are trusting, believing on Christ, then you can believe and trust and receive that resurrection reveals the greatest answer to prayer. It's relational reconciliation that receives you as a relative. Weak Christian, whichever one, wherever you're at, God doesn't look at you and say, oh, well, that one, yeah, I know. He's here. He's in the house. I don't really like him, though. He's, he always fails. He always falls short. No. He receives us on the merit of his son. He receives us on the merit of his son. There are no red-headed stepchildren within the family of God. There are only those who've been received by faith. There's only those who have been received and granted fellowship within the family of God. Now, the resurrection we saw in Christ is a foretaste of what this final garden is. Now, we've talked about these gardens. We've seen the garden of creation. We've seen the garden of exile, and we've seen the garden of life. I want to give you one final garden, and it's the garden of healing. And it's the healing of the nations. Now, Jesus was the foretaste of the resurrection that we one day hope for. He's the foretaste. He was, he was the, what the Bible calls the firstborn among many brothers. And this is the end. This is where it's heading. Revelation 22, 1 through 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healings, healing of the nations. Now, I want to be very clear about something. We are not coming to Jesus to get healing. We come to Jesus to get Jesus. And by a, as a byproduct of that, we get healing. And then he says, verse 3, look down at verse 3 of chapter 22. He says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship, and they will see His face, and His names will be on their forehead, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord, the God, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is where we're heading, brothers and sisters. The resurrection today we celebrate is the foretaste of it. We haven't seen anything yet. I feel like I feel like I'm. Um, I don't know if you've ever uh, seen the Chronicles of Narnia, but I just feel like when they when they come out of the wardrobe, we've been showing it to my son a lot. There's a the the guy if you remember in the wardrobe, they come out of the wardrobe. They, now they had just spent literally a lifetime in Narnia, and they come out of the wardrobe and they're children again. And the, the professor comes in and he, he asks them, where were you all? And what do they say to him? You wouldn't believe it if you saw it. And you know what he responds with? Now, it's likely that he was the one who was also in the wardrobe at some point. But he says, try me. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, this is what we have look, to look forward to. 
and we have no clue of the hope and the glory that is coming to those who have trusted in Christ. So whatever you're going through today, I hope you can know and trust and believe that these four gardens have happened. These, the first three we have, have happened and we have seen, and it's this last garden that we hope for. So is, is Crystal here? Would you be able to play? Let's play. I want us to sing, um, oh, praise the name once more time, one more time. And I want us to sing as though we believe this. <laughs> I want us to sing as though not just, yeah, ladies, you can come up too. I want us to sing not just as, as we're theoretically up here in our brains believing this, but we're actually believing that one day God has promised this garden of healing. And this is coming for those who have trusted in him. Let's sing together.